Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence. This podcast is produced by Friends for a Nonviolent World, or FNVW. FNVW champions nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every human being. The Everyday Nonviolence podcast highlights people in our community who are using the principles and practices of nonviolence to transform themselves and the world around us. Their stories deepen our understanding of the impact of violence and the many ways nonviolence can be used for healing and social change. Welcome to the Everyday Nonviolence Podcast. I'm Ellery McArdle, your host for this episode, and my guest today is Elizabeth Lawman, an assistant Ramsey County attorney. Elizabeth, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me today. A lot of your work at Ramsey County has been as a prosecutor in the adult criminal division, so you're dealing with a lot of violent crime cases. Tell me, what led you to that type of work? I began my career in uh, Stearns County which is St. Cloud, Minnesota. And I began with doing domestic assault cases. And then when I came to Ramsey County, there's often you start with lower level cases and you sometimes fall into things. And I became very close to the prosecutor who did those type of uh, shootings, gang shootings and homicides. And eventually we worked very well together and I took on that caseload and there was something I, I enjoyed it and I was good at it. You're good at it. So you wanted to continue with it. Yes. Yes. I, you know, I think when you get deep enough into anything, you, you begin to keep learning more and more. And as I got more and more into those cases, I began to encounter, especially in St. Paul, and I began to meet the same 200 families maybe involved is both kind of victims, witness, and defendants. And I developed relationships with those victims and their families. And I also developed very good relationships with others in the criminal justice system. And so that's why I've stayed in that area. Yeah. So over the past few years, it seems like your perspective has kind of dramatically changed on how best to deal with violent crime in our communities. Can you talk about your perspective before the change, why the change, and and what led to that change in perspective? Sure. When I began my career in the early 2000s, that was, I think, in many ways, the height of the push for what we would traditionally call, quote-unquote, accountability and incarceration. And I'm a naturally a, a fairly competitive person and someone who doesn't back down. And so that fit well into my personality, and I pursued that vigorously. And very early on, people would talk about, especially as I got into more person crimes, that there were other things going on in their lives. And early on in my career, I would often say in court, the other stuff that happened to you wasn't relevant to what you did in this moment. We need to hold you accountable. And the truth is, it's doing this work over years and years and seeing 
the fact that I'm sending people to prison to hold them accountable. And then just about all of them come back out and very few come back out in a better situation or in a way that makes the makes the community whole. So I would say this is more of a gradual evolution of doing this type of work for over 15 years. And I think like many people, as they get older, they think they have such a clear vision early on and you kind of think like you know everything. And then as you do the work more and more, you realize that maybe there's a lot more nuance and that the answer isn't so clear. And so I was slowly evolving anyway to realize that simply going to trial, putting people in jail, saying I'm holding them accountable does not hold them accountable and does not bring safety to the community. And then I had a case, I feel like it was around four, five years ago, where a young man was shot in a park in St. Paul, and he was shot and killed. And it began, I think it began just, it was a beautiful spring day, a lot of people out. It was a Sunday afternoon. This young man and his friends stopped by the park. There was an argument that his friends were primarily involved in with another young man. Someone handed that young man a gun and he fired it basically indiscriminately in the crowd and killed the young man who ended up being the victim. First of all, it's a miracle more people weren't shot because there were over 40 rounds fired. And all the all of his friends who watched him die essentially in front of them, I met them over the next couple of years. And I witnessed firsthand the trauma that they were all going through and their lack of ability or skills or support to deal with any of that trauma. And then I also watched as one by one, every single one of them basically ended up in jail, committing additional crimes. I did prosecute that case. It took several years and I got to know the victim's family very well. And we would sit uh, for hours because courts often take a long time and watch as so many people who are hurt, hurt other people. And there is no denying that the trauma that the young men witnessed of their friend dying played a key role in what they ended up doing in the future. And we were, we all felt kind of stuck. And even after I prosecuted the case and both the young man who did the shooting and the guy who gave him the gun went to prison for many years, the victim's family was still in incredible pain. And it didn't feel it didn't feel the way you think it would or in a movie and ended up working with this mom to start another mom's restorative justice circle. And it was about a year and a half into that circle that the mom turned turned to me and the whole group and said, you know, it's only now that she's finally starting to heal. And it was kind of that realization that simply what I was doing was only prosecuting people, not acknowledging all the trauma they've been through not setting them up for any success and also not helping the community heal to help everyone move forward together. That's when I began to realize we need to do something different. So what are some of the approaches that you would like to put in place? I think there are a lot of approaches out there that have been tested and have more success. So let me give you two statistics to just kind of hammer home the point of what we're doing is not working. In Minnesota, from 1985 to 2015, our population increased 36% and our incarcerated population increased 284%. 
we pay over $40,000 a year to incarcerate someone. Given that level of increase, we should have no crime, but look at where we are. And again, I personally played a role in that. I have argued and sent a lot of people to prison, claiming that we're making the community safer. But look, there's still unbelievable levels of crime right now. The U.S. as a whole is 5% of the world population, and we incarcerate 25% of the world's population. That is completely disproportionate. And yet, violent crime, and in particular gun crime, is off the charts in the United States. So starting from that point that what we're doing is not working, we need to do something very different. One thing, this is from the National Network for Safe Communities, is they talk about focused deterrence. And that has historically been fairly successful. And that it takes a very different mind shift. You can do it with domestic violence. You can do it with DWI. I'm now organizing a program in Ramsey County where we're trying to do it with auto thefts. So what you begin with the premise is that you want to do everything that's actually evidence-based. And so you review police reports, people who are at currently active, and that a lot of things, especially around gun violence, happen in a social circle, and that you identify the group of people most currently active by looking at who's been involved in shootings and who has um, been involved either as a victim or a witness or defendant in the in shootings and actual gun violence for the last two to three years. And from then you identify that's kind of your working group. So you approach them from that perspective and acknowledge what they've gone through. You also have a community moral voice that reaches out to them that talks about the fact that they're an important part of the community and we need them to do something different and also give them some tools to do that. And then there is a there's a stick because at the end of the day, if people are still actively involved in violence and in hurting people, we have to get them off the street. Right? We have to stop that immediate behavior. And so, but you're upfront with them. You're clear with them. You explain what the boundaries, what the guardrails are going to be, and then you enforce them. And so these type of programs have been successful in cities, big and small, all over the country. I think we can talk in a minute about like during the pandemic, why kind of everything stopped. But I think that is a way forward. It's a way to focus. And you bring community together. You bring police together to work together to address underlying issues. And I think it's a way forward for police. It's a way forward for the community. It's a way forward for resources. It's not just throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. It's not just reactive. And generally, police really like it because police who've also been doing this for years recognize that what they're doing is not working. And they would also want to be part of the solution of how as a society we can move forward. So do you have an example of where this has worked successfully? Well, it, it began, the very first one, um, David Kennedy is the one who developed this. The very first one happened in Boston. It was even done in Minneapolis in the 90s. Um, they've done it in New York, in Stockholm, North Carolina. So they've had a lot of they've had a lot of success. They've had moments of success. I would say what happens is when violence goes down, people then stop 
focusing on it. They stop doing the work. They stop continuing to engage. And then it, and then it comes back up because at the end of the day, you also have to address some of the underlying systemic things going on in our society that continues to bring about such high levels of violence. It sounds like a lot of these changes you're talking about, it'll take time and patience and kind of everybody has to kind of get on board with this. What gives you confidence and, and hope that, that more places will, will latch onto this idea? It's successful. I think people want to do something that actually um, makes communities safer. Safer. I think when people are involved in it, they really enjoy it. Because again, it's a different way. It's not a, this kind of binary. It brings police and community together to work on serious issues. And I think that's, I think that's a big piece of it. It is hard to get people on board and a lot of communities. That's kind of what takes the most amount of time is bringing all the correct players to the table and getting that buy-in. And then once it begins working, is keeping it going three, five, ten years down the road. But it saves money. It has it has a direct impact. Communities feel safer. People feel safer. So let's go back to the pandemic, as you had mentioned. You know, everything stopped. Can you just explain a little bit more about what you meant by that when everything stopped? When the pandemic hit, all of the, in many ways, all around us, right, all the social ties severed for everyone. A lot of the substance abuse groups stopped. A lot of the treatment centers stopped. A lot of the community outreach groups, they stopped. And I think that's what we're seeing. The consequence of that is when a lot of those other things that we don't talk about as much, that we don't see as much, aren't operating, that people go off the rails, you know. And then we've also just generally, I think, had a big fraying of social norms and social connection. And we as humans need all that. And I think that's a big part of these kind of focused deterrents and especially about restorative justice. It's about connection. Making sure to heal trauma, you need other people to help you through it. You need to be a part of something bigger than yourself. You need to recognize your role in your community, your role in society. And I think when all those connections were severed because everyone had to go into their home for months, that a lot of those things need to now be rebuilt. And that's why in many ways, I think that's one of the things we're not talking about of one of the huge drivers of uh, crime currently. Mm-hmm. Speaking of crime, we know that there's been an uptick, you know, in 2020 and today of violent crime locally, nationally. People are expressing their fears. They want to take action. What do you think are the primary contributors to the problems that we're seeing right now? I think that's a big one is that young people weren't at school. It's that social conditioning, how to act in a proper social environment, how to be connected, responsible, uh, how to self-regulate. I think we're having kind of a culmination of so many things. Again, I think not having those treatment centers and groups and in-person stuff really did a number on a lot of people. I think there's also... You know, over 700,000 people died and they died in obviously um, much a lot of the much older population, but also in communities 
of color that uh, are on the were on the front lines in terms of what was their jobs. So there's a lot of just trauma related to the pandemic and death in many of these communities. And there's a huge proliferation of guns. We've had a complete explosion of gun buying. And the more guns on the street, when you look at general crime in America, it's pretty similar to many other Western European countries. I think like burglaries and auto thefts. But when you add crimes involving firearms, we are off the charts. And so there's too many guns out there. There's too many lax laws around guns. Uh, the people, there are too many people who should not have guns, have guns. And it is really hard, given our laws, to figure out how they're getting them and then to do anything about it. And when you have so many of them, that's a huge part of it. I mean, I really think that's, you know, if you're talking about the top 100 reasons for increase in violence, one through 90 is guns and 90 through 100 is a lot of other factors. And so we focus on 90 through 100, but we don't focus enough on one through 90. And we need basic regulation about guns. My daughter's 15 and taking driver's ed, right? So she's spent whatever, 20 hours, 30 hours studying everything about driving a car. There is nothing to go get a gun. Now, if you want a permit to carry, but you can just go buy a gun without a permit to carry. And once you get a gun, you don't ever have to register. You don't ever have to document who you sold it to. You don't have to do anything. And then if you do sell it to a felon or someone who should have it, our laws uh, around that are very, very lax as well, that the standard to prove that someone, it's not new or should have known, but it's if you actually knew that they didn't have a right to have a gun. And that's quite hard to prove. So it's a whole series. If we just did the basic stuff that we do for buying a boat, buying a motorcycle, buying a car, if we did that to guns, that would make a significant difference, in my opinion. Just listening to you and all of the individuals and families that you have encountered and continue to encounter, there's so much trauma, there's so much grief. How do you as a human being do this job? It, it sounds very difficult. Well, I mean, I've been given a lot of gifts in my life. And I... I was actually born in the former Soviet Union. We were religious refugees. We left because we were persecuted. We came to Minnesota. So many people have been so kind and supportive and helpful of me and my family. And I early on have always felt a very strong sense of the need to give back. And that's why I entered public service. Earlier on, I even worked as advocate at a battered women's clinic, and I've managed food pantry. And so this in some ways was a natural progression. And I'm really lucky. I, and I think, I think it helps me appreciate that every day. I have a loving family. I have a circle of friends that are very supportive and I want others to have that. I see the lives my children have, and then I encounter children young people that have completely different lives. And if I don't do something about that, I, I, I couldn't live with myself. I have to do something to help those other kids to have at least a fraction of the chance that my kids have. And just in terms of, I totally practice self-care, right? I 
go for walks in the woods every weekend. I meditate. I write in a journal. I think, again, I've been doing this long enough that it builds up in you. And if you don't find strategies to recognize and kind of deal with that, yeah, I see other people who have kind of decompensated either through developing very dangerous bad habits themselves or have to stop doing this work. This is not something you can probably do forever, but I also feel energized. You know, you meet people with so much compassion and you just see the ability of the human spirit to overcome so much. People who go through so much trauma and then turn around and thank me and are so grateful for what I've done and are so gracious and loving. And it it's really inspiring. And again, you know, I want to be able to really move our criminal justice system in a different direction, one that's like effective, uh, one that's moral and ethical, and that actually brings safety to everyone. Do you remember that time coming to America from the Soviet Union? I don't. I was three. I act like I remember. I remember stories my parents, my family told me. So it's hard to distinguish what's my memory and what's, you know, just all these family stories. But no, I I mean, that's the other thing. So my parents have a very thick accent. And I early on grew up as the person they would put on the phone to kind of figure something out, dispute a bill. And there's a story I'll tell you about how when I, when we first got here, the daycare centers um, became very full with all the new Jewish immigrants that came. So there wasn't room at the Jewish community center. So the first year I spent with my grandmother, just kind of roaming around town and we would run errands and she didn't speak a word of English. And I, within like two months was fluent in English. And so I was her kind of interpreter. And there's a famous story in our community that we went to the bank and now I'm three and a half, four, I don't know what I'm doing. And so I just like stand in the front door and start yelling. I announce who I am. I announce that this is my grandmother, that she doesn't speak English and that she needs a hundred dollars. And so like, apparently everyone like turns around and starts laughing. And then like the manager comes and helps us. But those were the kinds of things my grandmother and I did on a pretty regular basis. Wow. That's, and how old were you at the time? Three to four. Oh my goodness. Wow. So let's get back to your career because until recently you were a frontline prosecutor from my understanding. Can you just talk about your newer role at the Ramsey County Attorney's Office? Yes, I am working on a project where we're doing this focused deterrence involving uh, youth auto theft. And so working to identify Uh, youth who, so we have all these new wonderful cars that are come with key fobs that we all love. But the thing about it is too many of us leave our key fobs in the car and forget about them. And um, I think it's either six out of 10 or seven out of 10 auto thefts right now are happening because people accidentally are leaving their key fobs in their cars. And So a lot of youth, and when I'm talking youth, it's people under 25, but a lot of them are well under 18, are just driving around town. And when I mean town, I mean 
the suburbs, all over. And walking up to cars and seeing if they can open the door. And if they can, they're taking off and driving away. And a lot of them don't even have licenses. And so they're driving very dangerously. They're stealing people's cars. They're just going on joy rides, but they're also trashing the cars and they're going from car to car. And the thing about it is this leads and is leading to more and more dangerous behavior because what, what are they discovering? They're discovering stuff inside these cars. They're discovering they can open people's garages, commit burglaries. And, and so what we're trying to do is identify these people, the young kids, a lot of them are 13, 14 years old. These are not well thought out plans. These are not well executed. These things have, you know, GPS tracking on them. Now they're learning how to cut that, by the way. And so, and they're going also on high, high speed chases with police. Um, and at some point, this is also like, they're so not developed, right? Their frontal cortex, they have no understanding of how dangerous what they're involved in is doing and that it's hurting people. And so identifying young people involved in this, and usually they're off doing it with their friends. So it's got all those pieces where it's got this kind of danger with your friends, speed and recklessness. And so we're trying to identify the young people doing it. We're, um, we're hiring some kind of youth outreach workers to reach out to them and also to do it with um, a police officer to say, look, um, here are, we've actually figured out that you've been riding in or stolen in these 10 cars all over the metro area. Because sometimes that's often what happens in law enforcement is that we don't always talk to each other. And so, especially with cars, they're going from Woodbury to Rosemount to Forest Lake to, I mean, just all over. And so letting them know that, hey, we're really concerned about you. We're concerned about this dangerous behavior. Um, and then identify what are some of the driving forces going on. Um, some of them might be mental health. Some already might be some substance abuse. Um, some might need mentors to figure some of those things out. And then also to have kind of a community moral voice to have them come to a restorative justice circle and hear that this is impacting and actually hurting people. There's a consequence for what's happening and to begin to have them learn what it means to be accountable, to not view this as just a game. And they're so young. The goal is to off-ramp them out of this world, right, to see if we can get them on a different track and out of the track of the criminal justice system. But at the same time, we're going to be honest with them that if they keep doing this, we're building a record and we're going to have to stop it. But we're going to be there for them regardless of what, but we really want them to kind of take a minute Let's find something else for you to do with your time. Let's help you build some skills. Let's get you a job or sports or something um, besides kind of this super dangerous, reckless activity and get you on a very different path. So we just started that. We're, we haven't yet even fully, it's not fully operational. We're hoping it will be in January. And then again, this is taking that focus deterrence model and trying to apply it in this area. Because the other thing we realized when we started digging further, it really is like 20 or 30 kids. Each of them is connected to dozens of stolen cars. And so if we can get, make a dent in that 20 and 30, if we can make a 20%, 30% dent, that's actually a huge <laughs> number of cars. That's the ones we know about. And then on top of it, we can get them out of the system so they don't become another one of our statistic. And I don't 
you know, deal with them in a couple of years. I can tell you're really passionate about this. Yeah, I'm a passionate person, but I'm really passionate about this. Now that I know it doesn't work, it is so hard for me to keep doing something if I know it's not working, if it's not actually bringing safety to people, if it's not actually holding people accountable, if it's the true way to hold people accountable is to have them face what they have done, really face it, not not some mumbled, I'm sorry, but really be sorry and show you're sorry by repairing the harm, recognizing the harm, hearing what you've done to harm people, and then fixing that by never doing it again. So among FNVW's principles is an emphasis on treating every human being with dignity. It sounds like through all of the work that you've done, that you continue to do that, and all the things that you've witnessed in your life and your career, it sounds like that's something that you can still believe in after all this time. Oh, for sure. More than ever. Because once I realized that even the people I'm prosecuting have all been victims of horrible situations, I I never anymore demonize those individuals and and recognize that they are they're living <laughs> this experience, you know. I mean, it's this phrase, hurt people, hurt people, but that is so true. And the other side is true, you know, healed people, heal people. And so I did restorative justice circles with young men incarcerated in jail. And to hear the way they describe themselves, it is gut-wrenching. They've been told that they're worthless. They've been told and they get it, right? They believe it. And so mission accomplished there. But that it's so much of what the way they act out, it's not because they hate other people. It stems from how much they hate themselves, that they don't even see the value of their own lives. I remember one man, one young man saying something, I don't remember what we were talking about, but he went around and said, I hope my sister never dates anyone as awful as me. I mean, so sad. And that just kind of that recognition that they are these untouchable, horrible people, and they're not. Now, are they doing really dangerous, damaging things to people? Yeah. But I agree, very, very rarely should someone be defined by the one worst thing they've done. And that if that's, I think, one of the, the strengths I have in my job is my ability to treat everyone with respect and dignity, because so often I come into these really tough, uncomfortable situations. I just had one recently where there was a sentencing on a homicide and the all the family of the individual who was murdered, I am dealing with their family members in the process of prosecuting. Actually, it turned out the, the man who was murdered, I had just sent his son to prison. And I remember him talking when he was being sent to prison that my father was murdered and it has really kind of destroyed my life. That's the thing. Someone who is murdered, we don't take the time or energy to make sure that the family gets help, that we recognize the trauma that the whole community is going through. We don't have enough survivors group. That's not an integral part. We don't set up a plan to make sure that you know, their family is able to help deal with the trauma in all the different ways that they're going through. And then they turn around and they're unable, especially young people. I mean, this young man was 14 or 15 when his father was murdered. That's a really key time. Of course, it would damage and hurt him. And there was nothing there. 
you know, there's nothing from our society to do anything different than what he ended up doing, which is picking up guns, robbing people, shooting people. And there you have it. And now we need to we can't ignore that. We can't just say you've done this thing. You have to go to prison. I mean, he does. And I said to him, but at the same time, we need to have him be able to help heal from the trauma he's gone through so he doesn't keep doing this, you know, kind of, I don't want to say acting out, but it's, you know, kind of these, you know, this, the view of the world and the inability to acknowledge and deal with what you've gone through, I think leads a lot of people to both, obviously, substance abuse, and then given the proliferation of guns, you know, violence. With all of this work that you're doing right now, super busy, uh, you're also in the middle of a campaign, right? Tell me about that. Yeah, well, I decided that, again, the culmination of my life's work, being in public service and being a frontline prosecutor, I live in Dakota County, and the prosecutor who'd been there um, after 33 years retired. And so I believe that it's time for a fresh perspective and bringing all this frontline work and understanding to Dakota County can really help Dakota County become a model in how we move forward, especially in Minnesota. You have Ramsey and Hennepin that are just kind of overwhelmed with violent crime. And Dakota County is much better positioned um, and has the space to really be able to bring evidence-based and outcomes-based programs. And it's a chance to look at what's happening and what is and isn't working with a new lens. And I think I'm uniquely positioned to do that. And I, I think this is, this is my chance to take everything I have learned and all the relationships I've built and apply it to the next step. Elizabeth, it was really nice talking with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World, visit our website at fnvw.org or call 651-917-0383. We hope you will subscribe so that you don't miss future episodes and insightful conversations. Please note that the views expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guest and are not intended to reflect the official positions of FNVW, its staff, or board of directors.